sixth sermon continues. Jeremiah chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards these people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord. Such as are for death to death. Such as are for the sword to the sword. Such as are for famine to the famine. Such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword shall slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble. To all the kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what? For what he did in Jerusalem, for who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will bemoan you or who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting and I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sands of the sea. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her sun has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. The sermon addresses the themes of Jehovah and Judah and Jehovah and Jeremiah. And the sermon begins with a list of. Of suffering that had been caused by a drought in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and then a supplication as the people cry out to God because of their affliction, and then a description of their sin in chapter 14, verse 10. Then it continues with a dialogue between Jehovah and Jeremiah. And that dialogue begins in chapter 14. In verse 11 and 12, you'll remember in chapter 4, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Don't pray for these people anymore. And the prophet has described this drought. And remember, in the ancient days, the drought wasn't coincidence. It wasn't um, a an environmental phenomenon. There was a direct correlation between what was happening to the land and what was happening to them. So the people cried out to God, they confessed their sin, they confessed their backsliding, and the Lord replied that he rejected their their cry and he rejected their plea. Not because he is hard and difficult and is looking for an excuse to condemn people, but because rather they were crying out because of their circumstances. 
They had no intention of changing their life or changing their heart. They were guilty of loving their sin. They were guilty of having no intention whatsoever of really turning from their sin and turning to their Savior. And so at the end of chapter 14, Jeremiah prays and Jeremiah weeps. He weeps night and day for the people. And Jeremiah questions if God has rejected the people completely, if they were beyond healing. And he acknowledges the wickedness and guilt of their fathers and urges the Lord once again to deliver them for his name's sake, for the temple's sake, for the covenant's sake. And acknowledge that only God could make the drought go away and send the rain and deliver them from impending judgment. And chapter 15. is God's answer. To Jeremiah's prayer. And what's his response? I can't tolerate the people's sin any longer. I can't. Allow them to indulge their desires any longer. I can't leave them with the impression that they have a license to rebel and sin. They were guilty, guilty, guilty of the most persistent sin. And so what's going to happen? They're going to have to bear the punishment for that sin. And so it begins with what I'm calling a word to the sinner who refuses to turn. In verse one, it says, then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards this people. Cast them out of my sight. Let them go forth. In other words, intercessory prayer would not save them. And you've got to understand something. The Bible is filled with examples of intercessory prayer of Moses, of Samuel, of Nehemiah. Both Moses and Samuel were famous, famous for their intercession there. This is a shocking statement to Jeremiah, because over and over again, we see the examples of Moses praying for the people in Exodus chapter 32 in Exodus in chapter 30, in Exodus chapter 34, in Numbers chapter 14, in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And then the Lord answers Samuel's prayers over and over again as he intercedes for the people. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 and through 9. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 through 25. You'll remember that Samuel leads the people to repent. And then he prays for them. And this is the key concept. What is the difference between Moses, Samuel, and Jeremiah? Do you have any idea? Good, then that means my job is somewhat safe. Moses prayed for the people after they repented. Samuel prayed for the people after they repented. Samuel led them to repent and then prayed for them. Samuel and Moses were willing to convince and persuade the people to turn from their sin, to acknowledge their sin and turn to God and trust the Lord. But it wasn't true in Jeremiah's case. He pleaded with them. 
He begged them to turn from their sin, but they refused. The Lord earlier had told Jeremiah that the people said, "Okay, we're willing to go back to religion and we're willing to go back to ritual and we're willing to go back to religious activities. And you know what that would be like? It would be like if you said, "Okay, okay, I'm willing to go back to church. I'm willing to to open up my Bible I'm willing to show the children that I'm trying to be a good person. I'm willing to show my husband. I'm willing to show my wife. I'm willing to show my family that I want to be a good person. But you have no intention of changing your ways and you have no intention of of turning from your sin and you have no intention of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. There's no change of heart. For the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, they had become a cesspool of corruption, a picture of pollution and degradation. And so in verse 1, when it says, my mind would not be favorable towards these people, cast them out of my sight. Do you understand what you're reading again? Cast them out of my sight. Let's just be theological here for a moment. Does God know everything about everything? What's the right answer? Does he see everyone everywhere? Is there any way or any place that these people could go that God couldn't see them anymore? Yeah, the answer is no. So what in the world does this mean? In a sense... It means that they are going to be removed from God's favor and they're going to be removed from God's land and they're going to be removed from God's favor and presence. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're having a conversation with someone and that someone says to you, I don't want you in my sight. Get out of my sight. Now, they might say, get out of my sight and they may have to exit for the space of time, but in another sense, I'm going to suggest to you that it may mean something even worse. It may mean if a person tries hard enough to run away, if a person makes a conscientious effort To run from God, to flee from God, to run as fast as they can, as far as they can, in order to try to escape from God, they're going to succeed. For the person who repeatedly says, I don't want you, and I don't love you, and I don't need you, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. The people had asked, have you utterly rejected Judah in chapter 14, verse 19? God's answer, yes. And, but then God's going to expand the reason in verse 4. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But look at verse 2. It says, and it shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? Remember, I'm talking about they're going to leave. They're not going to be in the land anymore. Where where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death, such as for the sword to the sword, such as for the famine to the famine, such as for the captivity to the, the captivity. So I want you to just for a moment continue the thought from verse one to verse two. 
in this sense. I want them out of my sight or I'm running away from God. Where are we we going to go? And by the way, as you continue that thought and you ask the question, if you run from God, where will you go? It's a pretty simple answer, isn't it? If you are running away from God, what are you running towards? You're running towards judgment. You're running towards destruction. You can run hard and you can run fast and you can run long. And as you run hard and you run fast and you run as far as you can, as quick as you can. You're going to embrace judgment. The people of Judah and Jerusalem were running from God. And the, the very definition of running from God means that you're running towards destruction. And it, again, it becomes a type and a picture of each and every one of our lives. That's why it always makes sense not to run away from the Lord, but to run towards him, to embrace him. And so the verse gives us this stark communication of a very important truth. Every road, every road, every road that leads away from God, every road that leads away from Jesus leads to death and destruction. The people were doomed. They were destined for judgment. So what happens when people say, Well, where will God send us? Where shall we go? But I want you to understand the context. When the person says, where will God send us and where shall we go? Remember the context of the conversation. I want you to turn from your sin and I want you to turn to me. I don't want to turn from my sin and I don't want to turn to you. Well, what do you want to do? I want to run away from God and I don't want to have anything to do with God. And I don't want to... but what do you? Well, I, you know, I don't want to go to hell. Well, what do you want? I want to go to heaven. But I don't want to trust Jesus and I don't want to abandon my sin and I don't want to embrace him as the savior. So what do you want? I want to go to heaven, but I want to keep my sin. Is that an option? That's really not an option. And that's part of the point. Where will God send us? Where will we go? The answer that Jeremiah has given. Okay, when people ask you, Jeremiah, well, where should we go? And here's the answer that I'm going to give you. Some of you are going to be executed in battle and some of you are going to die from starvation and some of you are going to be taken captive. Ouch. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Do you remember in John's gospel? Jesus is preaching in John chapter 6. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And the religious observant Jews said, cannibalism, eating people, gross. And they left him. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he said, are you going to leave me too? 
And do you remember their response in John chapter 6, verse 68? Where shall we go? Where can we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. If there's another option other than Jesus, if there's another way other than Jesus, if there's another opportunity other than Jesus, the Bible doesn't seem to indicate what that is. Where indeed, where indeed, where shall we go? And in verse 3, look what it says. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. The judgment is coming. The Babylonian army is on the way. The people are going to be killed. The dead are going to be left unburied. Unburied bodies are going to be dragged away by the dogs and eaten by the the birds and other wild animals and the picture of wild animals dragging away dead bodies would have disgusted and terrified the people who are listening to Jeremiah preach the sermon. Just like it should you. If in your mind you have this image of Dead bodies after dead bodies heaped on top of one another and there's nobody left to bury them and the dogs and the birds and the wild animals grab the dead carcasses and drag them away because I got to tell you something for the observant Jew and the culturally religious Jew. Leaving a person to be eaten by the animals was one of the most disgusting things imaginable. Even in the history of our country, when our when our relatives and families were coming from east to west, when someone died along the trail, you didn't just leave the body on the side of the road. You dug a hole and you wrapped them and you you piled rocks on top of them so that the wolves wouldn't dig them up and drag them away. And so the picture is terrifying. But you know what else it is? True. It's true. And in verse 4, look what it says. I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. By the way, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the Bible or not exactly familiar with Manasseh, his name means in the Hebrew language, the one who causes us to forget. You'll remember that this is the name that was given to one of the children of Joseph. When he was in captivity in Egypt. And so he names his son Manasseh in the good sense, in in the sense that he's caused me to forget my affliction. He's caused me to forget my enslavement and my bondage. And so Hezekiah names his son in that sense. But Manasseh has a spiritual form of dementia. 
The thing that he will forget is the covenant of God and he will forget the commands of God and he will forget the grace and the mercy of God and he will forget the plan of God. And and so the Lord says, I will hand them over to trouble. And by the way, the descendants of Jacob, he says, they're going to be hated by the nations. Have you ever met a group of people who were more hated than the Jews? As they're taken captive by Assyria, they're captured and destroyed. As they're taken in Babylon, then part of them return. Part of them wind up in Persia. And, and a man named Haman tries to embark on a course of extinction for the Jews. You can hardly go through a single century in all of history where the Jews haven't been persecuted and hounded and alienated and hated. It's as if God is peering down through the future centuries. He's seeing every hateful and he's seeing every hurtful rejection. The Jews are going to become the object of contempt and they're going to become the object of loathing. And some people think that, well, wait, wait, if God sees into the future, well, doesn't that mean that God is responsible for that future? Well, clearly the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the beginning of the Jewish people and he knows the end of the people, the end of the Jewish people. He knows the end of the beginning of our life and the end of our life. He knows the beginning of our country and the end of our country. He is sovereign and in his sovereignty, guess what? He has given people the ability to choose or choose otherwise. A sovereign God has given real people the ability to choose And those choices are real and consequential. And they're reaping what they're sowing. And what exactly were the crimes of Manasseh? Again, if you've read the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, you're probably aware that Manasseh was one of the most sinful kings of Judah. And the sins committed by Manasseh included the detestable practice of, of embracing his neighbor's Gross immorality, persistent idolatry, the worship of false gods, deep involvement with the occult, searching for truth in celestial bodies. He worshiped the sun. He worshiped the moon. He worshiped the stars. And he began to even embrace human sacrifice. According to the Bible, Manasseh took his own son. He took his own son and he offered him as an offering to Molech on the heated brass arms of a false god. He stoked the fires and he placed his living son on this pagan deity as he burned to death. And this is the beginning of the end. For Judah and for Jerusalem. That's what the Lord is saying. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah's day, they were even more wicked than the pagans who had occupied the land before the Jews were expelled 
or before the, the, the pagans who occupied the land were expelled for their sinful practices. By the way, in history, Manasseh was deported for a short time to Babylon. And upon his return, he put away his idols. He restored worship in the land. He violated his father's reforms. He restored the pagan practices, wound up in Babylon, and then came back again. Hezekiah, his father, the son of Ahaz, took over about 728 B.C. His reign lasted about 25 years after this intense war between Assyria and Egypt. There was conspiracy and counter-conspiracy. There was a religious reforms that took place. But there was this downward spiral that was taking place in the land. And so the Lord brings it to Jeremiah's attention. I remember... I haven't forgotten. You know, there's been a downward spiral in our own country, particularly with the legalization of abortion in 1973. In 1973, I was a junior in high school. It was the year that I got saved. There was this spiritual cloud that enveloped our country and we were at a crossroads and the crossroads were, are we going to turn from our sin and are we going to turn to God? Are we going to stem the tide or is there going to be a continual persistent rebellion and turning away from God? And look at it says in verse five. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Oh, who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? Three questions. All require the same answer. Who's going to have pity on you? Nobody. Who's going to bemoan you? Nobody. Who's going to turn you aside and ask what you're doing? Nobody. Except for maybe the Lord. Is anyone going to stop by the way, the people had sinned past the point of pity. And I know that you've been in situations where you look at a person and they're pitiful. You look at them and you feel sorry for them. But imagine the kind of activities that they have to be involved in where now your pity has turned to disgust. The feelings that's going on inside of your heart isn't compassion. It isn't pity anymore. It's disgust. The people are past the point where no reasonable, no honest, no moral person is going to say anything other than we're done. We're done here. I mean, I've done some wicked and reprehensible things. I had a person on my radio program yesterday. His name is Sam Childers. He is He's called the machine gun preacher. And he says, I've met a lot of wicked and perverse people. And, and, and he said to me, I mean, I've met some really wicked people. And he said, you know, who's the worst and most wicked person I've ever met? He said, it was me. He said, when I think about every weird and wicked and reprehensible person, there was no one who had sunk down to the depths of sin that could describe my life. 
He started drugs using his father and mother were Christians. He started using drugs at 11 years old. He started taking LSD and harder drugs at 12 and 13. He was mainlining hard drugs by the time that he was 15. He became a shotgunner. That means it was his job to protect drug deals. He married a stripper. And he came to a place in his life where he couldn't continue anymore. Where something fundamentally radical would have to change in his life. These people had embarked on a downward spiral that they were the object of disgust. Do you understand the people had made their choice and that choice was clear. They were committed to living an immoral life, a deceitful life, a wicked life. Theirs was a commitment not to live for the Lord, not to love the Lord, not to embrace the Lord, not to embrace his mercy and his grace and his life and his love. And so this indictment comes from the Lord himself. And look what it says in verse six. You've forsaken me. It wasn't the other way around. It it isn't that God walked out on them. He says, you've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I'm weary of relenting. You need to understand the context. The people had forsaken God. They had religious externals, but there was nothing inside of them. So what is the human situation, by the way, when people forsake God? What happens internally to the person who fundamentally, irrevocably says, I don't know God and I don't want to know him. I don't love God and I don't want to love him. The direction is always backwards. It can never be forwards. So what is the Lord's situation? Before we talk about the Lord's situation, let's talk about the human situation. The human situation for the person who has forsaken the Lord is that they have to go backwards. The Lord's situation is when the person goes backwards, the Lord is compelled to enforce his moral law. And he has to do so with justice. And sometimes with grief. That means that when the Bible says, be sure that your sin will find you out. That means the reality is There is a God who, because of his grace and his mercy, really is gracious and kind and patient. The Bible says that he hasn't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity. But in patience and love, there's a constant appeal that goes out. But for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, their appeal had run out. John MacArthur preaches a message, if you ever have an opportunity to go online, type in, when God abandons a nation. When God abandons a nation. In the sermon, he quotes Romans chapter 1. He describes what happens when people in that downward spiral abandon God, embrace their own desires, and then there are no boundaries and there are no borders. 
The people have forsaken God, not the other way around. The people have gone backward, not forward. On occasion, they've cried out to God, like we've said in times of crisis, but they have no intention of turning back to the Lord. They don't really want anything to do with the Lord or his commands or his principles. They they understand that they are religiously and culturally Jewish. They understand that they are the recipients of and the beneficiaries of the promises of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, of Joseph and Judah. But they really don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. Just like a family who is raised in a Christian home and and they have all of the benefits of a mom and a dad who prayed for them. And they have all the benefits of of a mom and a dad who instructed them in biblical principles. They have all of the benefits that come from being raised in godly circumstances. And then they just simply say, I don't care anything about that and I don't want to have anything to do with that. The people of Judah and Jerusalem were not interested in the principles in the Bible. They were not interested in the commands of God. They were not interested in anything that would hinder or prohibit their ability to embrace and indulge themselves. Oddly enough, verse 7 is a, a verse of hope, even though you may not see it on the surface. I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. That word winnow, it's really a hopeful word. You might be thinking, what do you mean? The winnowing is designed to get the people to turn from their ways, hence to God. In other words, that's what the winnower. Do you guys even know what a winnower is? Some of you are going, I have no idea what a winnower is. Okay, let me help you. In the ancient world of Israel, they would grow grain. You understand that. They would cut the grain. You understand that. The grain consists of a stalk and the head of the grain. The stalk is chaff. The grain is food. The food has value. The chaff has none. And so what they would do is they would cut the harvest. They would throw the grain up in the air and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away. And so they would have a winnowing fan. You would take the grain and the the chaff, if you will, and the, the grains coming down, the winnowing Chaff is blowing away. The heavy grain falls to the ground. The heavy grain has value because it's food. The chaff has no value because it blows away or it's raked in a pile and then burnt. What's valuable remains. What has no value is gathered and burned. So how are we to think about this verse? In a normal wind, the chaff goes away and there's something valuable. What the Lord is basically saying is the crop is 99.9% no value. And whatever little grain has appeared, I'm trying to rescue that grain. But what happens when a storm rages and a hurricane comes? When the storm is blowing and the wind is blowing, when a high wind is is blowing, will it blow away both the chaff and the grain? 
The answer is yes. Is that what is, is taking place here? Not exactly. When he says, I'm going to winnow them with a winnowing fan, the fan is like a pitchfork. Have you ever tried to eat grape nuts with a fork? You notice how the little grape nuts fall through the cracks in the fork? And if you're winnowing grain with a pitchfork, it's hard to catch the grain. But this is a vivid Hebrew picture. The Lord is describing the suffering that his judgment will bring upon the people. In other words, if you ever ask the question, Lord, do you understand what's happening? The answer is yes. Do you understand the consequences of sin? Yes. The gates of the land are a reference to the whole land. The gates are the place where you enter into the land. The people would lose their hope. They would lose their peace. They would lose their security in the land of promise. And the Lord makes that utterly devastating statement. I will destroy my people. But even the statement itself burns. It's a double entendre. Because it's my people. It would be the same way that you use the expression, my children, my grandchildren. When you use the term children and you use the, grand, the term my grandchildren, you're talking about this intimacy. You're talking about a relationship. You're talking about a relationship where terrible things are happening and it's generating a great deal of pain. P- pay close attention to the reason. Pay close attention to the reason that he gives in the text. Since they do not return from their ways. Do you understand what's happening? Judgment isn't his first choice and it isn't his second choice and it isn't his third choice and it isn't his fifth choice and it isn't his tenth choice. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do with a person who persistently, persistently, consistently refuses, refuses, refuses to embrace the grace and the mercy that's found in the Lord? And so in verse 8 it says, Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. I'm going to suggest to you that the mother of the young men here possibly is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. He means this in a, in a metaphoric sense. Um, in verse in verse. Nine, it says she languishes who's born seven. She's breathed her last. The sun has gone down while it is yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded and the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemy, says the Lord. The mother of the seven sons in this war, in the battle, in, in the judgment that comes, every single son is dead. And the poet Jeremiah writes... Her son has gone down while it's yet day. It's a poetic device. The sun is the source of light. The lights are out. How do the lights go out while the sun is still out? Because it's a poetic metaphor. 
The woman seems to represent Jerusalem. She's ashamed and and confounded, disgraced. And disgrace means unhappiness brought about through guilt. If you've ever wondered what the word disgrace means, that's what it means. It's unhappiness that's been brought about by guilt. In the Jewish culture, it's more than just tragic when you lose everyone in the family. If I told you a story about a woman in World War II who had seven sons and all seven sons go off to war and all seven sons die, you would say that's tragic. That's horrible. But in the Jewish culture, with the loss of all the boys in the family, there's no heir. There's no future. And since there's no heir and there's no future, the survivors of the invasion face extinction once they're caught because there's people who are going to be killed on the spot. There's going to be people who are captured and then later killed. And then there's going to be people who are taken away. And so the day of judgment is a day of sorrow and it's a day of pain and it's a day of devastation. But it's also... A day of justice. And so even in this biblical setting, it becomes a type and a picture of a future day of judgment. You see, the Bible speaks of a day of of judgment when when the Lord returns in power and glory and he judges a world. But remember the world that he's judging. This is a world that has said no to the Bible, no to Jesus. No to the gospel, no to forgiveness, no to grace, no to love, no, no, no. And the Bible says that Jesus comes not as savior, but as judge. Because it's a day of justice. The people deserve judgment. Because of their persistent commitment to rebellion and because of a lifestyle of wickedness. But remember, we live in a world that says that no matter how persistent the rebellion is, no matter how wicked the lifestyle is, God doesn't have the right to judge. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. The God who created all of humanity, the God who created men and women, the God who created people not to be destroyed, but to be loved and to be redeemed and to be reconciled to God has made a provision in the person of Jesus Christ. In this passage, God's giving a picture of judgment in answer to Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah said, have mercy on the people. By the way, does God answer prayers? What's the right answer? He does answer prayers. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And no is an answer, isn't it? If you, do you remember a kid growing up and you'd ask your mother or your father, Mom, Dad, can I do this? And they would say no. And so you'd keep asking until you got the answer you were looking for. You would even go so far as to say, you haven't given me an answer. When all of the while that they had in fact given you an answer, but you just didn't like the answer. Or the worst answer of all that your mom or dad would say. Maybe. I don't like that. Because 
in the world in which I lived, maybe always really meant. Yeah, see, you, yeah, you guys know. Maybe really meant no. When God answers prayer, he says yes. He says no. God doesn't say maybe. God says wait. Sometimes he'll say yes. Sometimes he'll say no. And sometimes he'll say wait. For the person who says, save my mom, save my dad, save my son, save my daughter, save my family, save my friends. And your family rejects God and your family rejects Jesus and your family rejects the Bible and it rejects salvation by faith alone in grace alone through Christ alone. They say, I want you to save my family. I want you to save my loved one. Well, what if your loved one rejects God and rejects Jesus and rejects the Bible? What do you suppose the answer to your prayer is going to be? The answer I'm going to suggest to you is going to be then encourage them to believe the Bible. Encourage them to believe that you're saved by grace. Encourage them to understand the, the wickedness of sin and the marvelous joys of grace and mercy that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember what it says in the Bible. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved because God wants what's best for us. And he also wants what's best for our loved ones. And what is best is faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is best for us is to believe the gospel and be saved. And what is best for our family is to believe the gospel and to be saved. And it, it's not not best to try to theologically wiggle out of God's redemptive strategy in the person of Jesus Christ. Save my family. Apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus, apart from grace. Yes. But there is no salvation apart from Jesus. The way of escape is outlined in, in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that we can't ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He that seeks finds. To him that knocks it will be opened, it says in Matthew 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can ask what you will and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. John 14. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean? Is it magic if you ask in his name? No, it means with the power, the authority, the character, the consistency and the word of God. And so we see a, a window into the soul of the suffering prophet. We go from that answer and now Jeremiah is going to interject a word. He's going to reveal his inner struggle. In verse 10, he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have been lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Jeremiah says, I wish I'd never been born. 
Have you ever prayed out a prayer like that? Lord, why did you put me in this family? Why did you make these people my family? What were you thinking? Jeremiah is struggling with loneliness and alienation and persecution and anguish for God's people. He makes a personal confession. You know, a lesser man might speak of his faithfulness and his triumphs, but here Jeremiah reveals something way more painful and way more personal. His failures. And his experience becomes like a window into his heart. But also a window into the heart of every true believer who's ever been misunderstood or mistreated. So what would cause a person to cry out? I wish I'd never been born. Depression. Disillusionment. Persecution. Suffering. For Jeremiah, his life has become unbearable. Do you remember why? He has an unpopular message that nobody believes. Everyone opposes him. Everyone curses him. Everyone wants to shut him up or shut him down. He's bold before men. He's broken before God. He condemns the people's rebellion and sin without compromise. He warns of God's judgment over and over and over and over. He's faithful in ministry. And the result? Nobody wants to have anything to do with him. And in verse 11, the Lord said, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity, in the time of affliction. I'm going to take care of you, Jeremiah. Verse 12, can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? He's talking about the invading armies of Babylon. Can anyone break iron? Can anyone break the northern iron and the bronze? He's talking about the massive onslaught of the army that's going to come and judge the nation. Jeremiah receives comfort and a promise. The Lord will deliver him, allow him to complete the task in the ministry. The day will come when the enemies of Jeremiah will seek his counsel and his prayers, but it's just not going to be now. In verse 13, your wealth and your treasures I will give as a plunder without prize because of all your sins throughout your territories. The nation is going to lose their wealth. In verse 14, it says, I'll make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you don't know for a fire is kindled in my anger, which shall burn upon you. In other words, I'm going to help you, Jeremiah. I'm going to give you the strength and the courage to face the ministry and embrace the ministry that I've given you. Verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors and your enduring patience. Do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. In other words, Lord, you know me. You're the judge. Remember me and visit me. I feel alone and abandoned and isolated and cut off because I don't have any real human contact. Take vengeance on me, on my persecutors. Jeremiah isn't turning the other cheek. He isn't saying love my enemies. He's saying, look, all of these people who are making my life miserable, burn them, Lord. You know why you're laughing? Because you're going, oh, yeah, that's what I do. Wow, the prophet of God does it, and I do it as well. But remember what Paul writes in the book of Romans. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. 
The word for vengeance, by the way, can mean personal vengeance or it can mean judicial vengeance, like when a court decides a case and adjudicates a violation of the law. In a real sense, I'm thinking that Jeremiah is probably reminding all of us that the Lord will make everything wrong right. He's encouraged by God's promises and faithfulness. And look what it says in verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. In the suffering, in the trial, in the pain, in the misery, in the isolation. Jeremiah is not only encouraged by God's promise and he's encouraged by God's faithfulness, but he delights in God's word. He delights in God's word. Literally, the text says, your name is upon me. I found a a poem by Effie Marsh that was written hundreds of years ago. He said, the word is milk to feed the imparted life. This is the fare we need in peace and strife. The word is food to mold the man within and make him strong and bold to fight, to win. The word is honey to the sweet, Psalm 119, refined and pure, Psalm 1830. It fills with joy complete, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, unspoiled and sure, Psalm 93.5. The word's a living fount, Psalm 36.9. Tis pure and clear, Psalm 12.6. It makes the soul to mount, Isaiah 40.31, to Christ most dear, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. The words are running stream. It talks about the word being a fire of love, the word a lamp to light, the word a safe guidebook, the word a mirror bright, the word a hammer hard, the word balm, the word a girdle sure, not the girdle like girls wear, but, but something to wrap your waist around so that you can... Fight the battle. The words, the spirit sword. The words, the pilgrim stay. The words, the, the casket rare. This is why the Bible becomes such a source of strength. Your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me joy. In verse 17, he says, I didn't sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you filled me with indignation. In other words, Jeremiah is basically saying, I've lived a life of spiritual separation. I've lived a life of self-denial. I've refused to take and participate in the lifestyles of the wicked. Jeremiah said, I'm going, I've lived a lonely and isolated life and I've been filled with indignation over the people's sins. I voluntarily separated myself from human companionship and human intimacy so I could be with you. And in the midst of persecution, the emptiness and the pain and the isolation And the rejection is starting to catch up with him. He's feeling like God has abandoned him. He says in verse 18, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? 
What else does Jeremiah do? He asks God. He wonders why the pain and the loneliness seem so unending. He wonders whether God will fail him. Will God be like an unreliable and seasoned brook? Will it be like the wadis in Israel where unless a flash flood comes, there's no water. Sometimes it's filled with water. Sometimes it's dry as a bone. And guess what? He's crossed the line. Because he's doing what some people will encourage you to do and they're wrong. Some people will say, go ahead, get mad at God. He's big enough. He can take it. But guess what? You're always wrong. Let me repeat this. You're always wrong when you imply that God has done something wrong. When he when you say that he's done something wicked, he's done something unfair. He's done something unkind. He's been he's done something unmerciful. The moment you accuse God of any wickedness, you yourself have crossed a line of wickedness and rebellion. And the Lord therefore says, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vile. You shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. Do you understand what's happening in verse 19? It's a rebuke. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, he's he's not just simply talking about the people. He's talking about Jeremiah. Then I will bring you back. Why? Because small seeds of doubt and distrust have taken root in Jeremiah's heart. What are you saying? When Jeremiah says, can I really trust you? Can I really count on you? Will you really be there for me? God warns Jeremiah. The constant persecution, the constant rejection was taking its toll on Jeremiah's heart. But guess what the Lord did? does to Jeremiah, he gives him a message, the same message that Jeremiah has been giving to the people for the first 14 chapters. Jeremiah, you have to repent of this distrust and this doubt and this self-pity. You've bitterly complained instead of trusting God. Look at the expression, you shall stand before me. It was the word that was used to describe a servant who stands before his or her king. The word was used to describe Elijah and Elisha who stood before God in their prophetic ministry. And these two prophets knew what it was like when the brook ran dry. And they were going to have to trust God. And the Lord encourages Jeremiah to discern between what is precious and worthless. And I'm going to suggest to you that he's called to discern between what's precious and worthless in the context of his returning to God. The Lord is basically telling Jeremiah, repent and return. And I'll give you back the ministry that I've entrusted to you. Here's what I'm asking you to do, Jeremiah. I'm asking you to preach the truth. But you're going to have to repent. You must not turn to the people. They must turn to you. You can't become like them. They must become like you. You can't become like the people that God has entrusted to you. You must be faithful to the Lord. 
And if he does that, Jeremiah is promised three wonderful things in verse 20. And I'll make you to this people a fortified bronze wall and they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. Jeremiah's promised protection and power. The Lord would make the prophet invincible and pregnable like a bronze wall. God promised his presence and deliverance no matter what the opposition, no matter what the persecution, nothing that they could bring against Jeremiah would bring him down. The Lord will rescue him. He will deliver him. He will save him and redeem him from the wicked and their cruel hands. That's what it says in verse 21. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. And I'll redeem you or buy you back. From the grip of the terrible. You know what's interesting to me about the passage? His repentance isn't mentioned. The text doesn't say, oh, by the way, and Jeremiah repented. But we're left with the clear impression that he does. That those little seeds of doubt and those little seeds of distrust and his little outburst. God sets him on track and sets him in the right direction. Do you ever have outbursts? God, why are you doing this? Why are you being so unfair? Really? Seriously? You want to have that kind of conversation with God? He's incapable of doing anything wrong. He's always will do what is right. He is holy and righteous and just. You may in your mind, and God knows if you are, suggest that there is something wicked or there's something perverse or there's something wrong or there's something unfair. But we know if we carefully read the Bible that he is always just and he is always righteous. He is always holy. He is always good. Do you remember what Jeremiah's major task is? To preach against the sins of his people, to warn them of the impending judgment. And by the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Jeremiah, do you know how long he does it? How many of you would guess 10 years? How many of you would guess 20 years? How many of you would guess 30 years? There's a few. How many would guess 40 years? Better. How many of you would guess 50 years? If you guessed 50 years, you'd be right. 50. 50. 50. 50 years. With opposition, persecution, rejection. But he's going to proclaim the word of God till the end of his life. You remember what the New Testament says, you'll be persecuted, but you need to be faithful. Like Jeremiah, we're all faced with the decision to communicate God's message or become preoccupied with personal insults, personal concerns, personal safety. And the Lord gets him back on track and says, Jeremiah, I called you for a special time and a specific task. I'm calling you to deliver an unpopular message to an ungrateful people. You know what? 
That's probably not going to be your ministry. Guess what? There are going to be people who hear your message of hope and they're going to respond to it. You're going to have children who are going to hear the gospel and believe it. Some of you might have an unpopular message to an ungrateful people. But what if I told you that you're going to be the exception and not the rule? There will be people who will hear the truth that their sins can be forgiven and that God loves them and Jesus is willing to save them. And they'll be saved and they'll be changed because you were faithful to the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're somewhat comforted by the fact that Jeremiah is willing to share his struggles and his failure. And we're also comforted that for all intents and purposes, it looks like he will turn from his sin and he will turn to his Savior. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who models for us submission and obedience to the complete will of God. Lord, we're so grateful that we don't have to save ourselves, but that we can trust Jesus, that he's our savior. And so, Lord, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would learn the lessons that Jeremiah so much wants to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.